take us on roads where we travel with Jesus. And there are two questions that I want you to ask yourself throughout this message this morning. The first one is this, where is Jesus? And the second one is this, is what do I hear him saying to me in the context of what it is that you need in life? One of the things that we're looking at in this series is, if you look behind us, you see all of these all these props that we have. The road to Jericho, it says it's 6,332 miles from where we are right now. And here's a couple of things that signs do for me. Signs point me in the right direction. They give me an idea of the direction that I'm going, but they also give me an idea of proximity of where I am in relationship to the destination that I, I hope to arrive at. Signs have also, if I've paid attention to them in the past, and I haven't always done that, have prevented me from taking wrong turns or detours that make me take the roundabout way of getting where it is that I want to go. And so this morning, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to try to do something that I've never done before, and that's preach the entire chapter the 10th chapter, but I want us to, we're going to look at one story, and this one story, I think, governs and connects every other story in the 10th chapter. So I want you to grab your Bible, turn with me to your iPhone or your iPad or whatever it is that you have with you. Turn to Mark chapter 10, and I want to start at verse 46, where Jesus is on the road to Jericho. The Bible says, leaving Jericho, he comes to Jericho. And what that means is the ancient city Jericho had been destroyed a millennia before this. And it sat in ruins, and having passed through that, he came to the new Jericho, a winter palace that had been constructed by by Herod. And it's in this one-mile gap where people would gather and position themselves to beg for for gifts and alms from people. And Jesus passes by a, a blind man who Mark names as Bartimaeus. Listen to these words in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 and following. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a large crowd gathered, and a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. And so they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage and stand up. He's calling for you. So throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and he came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni. This is only the second time in all of the New Testament that this word is used. And it's a word that speaks to a very personal faith. That something had transpired in the heart and the life of this man, I think, already, that directs his question. He says, Rabboni, or my Lord and my teacher, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. And the Lord Jesus blessed the reading of his word to our hearts and minds on this our Lord's day. One of the keys to helping us understand... This passage in Mark lies in our ability, I think, to connect the teachings that Jesus shares with us starting in chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10. And while we don't have time for this this morning, what I want to point out is this. It's that it's in this section that a change in focus of Jesus' teaching occurs. 
Jesus now turns his face towards Jerusalem to face and to fill everything that had been written about him that would happen during what we've come to call the week of Passion. And this morning, we're going to fast forward. Last week, we were in Galilee. But this morning, we're going to fast forward towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, where he's moved to the southwestern side of Galilee, all the way south to the cities of Jericho, just about 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And this is the last recorded miracle that Jesus performs before he walks in to Jerusalem and rides on a donkey. And it's during these last days with the crowds and his disciples who followed that we we actually begin to see this shift in Jesus' focus from the thronging crowds that had followed to the handful of disciples who call him Savior and Lord. They were the ones who'd walked the dusty, rock-ridden roads of Galilee and Samaria and Judea with Jesus. They'd watched him perform wondrous miracles and, and still suffered the attacks of the religious leaders and the political hierarchy. And it all starts in Mark 8 when Jesus turns to his disciples in the midst of this fabulous ministry, a very popular ministry. And he turns to his disciples and he asks them this question. He says, who do people say that I am? Pretty important question. And the disciples responded by saying, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. And others still say that you might be one of the prophets. And then Jesus ramps it up just a little bit and now he makes it personal. And he focuses all of his attention on them, and he asks the twelve this question. He says, but who do you say that I am? Now, this is a question that gets to the heart of the matter because it's, it's personal. And it's a question that each of us must answer as disciples. Who do we really believe Jesus to be? All of a sudden, Peter speaks up. He, he almost seems to take it upon himself to speak for the whole group. And he speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the anointed one. You're the one that's promised to be the Messiah. And it's here that Peter uses words that unmistakably identify Jesus as the promised Messiah. For the meantime, they seem to be assured. But what makes this story so important is that from this point on in Jesus' ministry, he shifts his focus And he begins to focus on his disciples, teaching them about his death and his burial and his resurrection and everything that's awaiting him in Jerusalem. His face is set towards Jerusalem. And from this point on, Jesus focuses his ministry more and more on instructing the twelve about what's getting ready to happen in Jerusalem. I want you to think with me this morning. Think of all the roads that they've walked with Jesus in Galilee, where he, where he did his first miracle by turning water into wine, where he called his first disciples, where he healed the first leper, where he healed Peter's mother-in-law and she got up and served him, where he healed the paralytic who picked up his mat and walked home leaping and praising God. Or think about the roundabout way that he took to get to Samaria, where he had what I believe to be an intentional yet unorthodox encounter with a Samaritan woman, maybe even of questionable reputation, and did so in public. He had a conversation. Think of the wondrous miracles that the people that these areas have witnessed, and all of which had come at the cost of his ministry. You see, everything that Jesus did made him popular with the people, but it created a great deal of unpopularity with the powers that ruled the day. And in the end, they would crucify him for it. And now he comes to Judea, Marking the end of his trek to Jerusalem, and it's on this last stretch known as the Jericho Road that he meets one of the subjects of our story this morning, a blind man named as Bartimaeus. 
I want us to look at some of the roads that he traveled to get to Jericho. And the first one is in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, and I call it the road to grace. I want us to walk these roads with Jesus and, and allow the lessons that we glean from his teachings to really kind of to serve as signs for us that provide us with direction as we choose to travel the roads with Jesus. So get your Bible and follow along starting in verse 1. In verse 2, Jesus is met and questioned by some Pharisees with an agenda. And as always, they, they raise this legal question to test Jesus, and not one designed to approve him in the eyes of those who are gathered, but one to discredit him in front of those who followed him. And their question is seen in verse 2. They say, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And obviously, this is an intended trap. Jesus knew this, and so he knew that if he said no, that he'd appear to be speaking out against their understanding of the law of Moses, and that wouldn't be good. But he also knew that if he said yes, he'd be appear to contradicting his own words on the position that marriage was always intended to be a permanent union. So this is how he answers. He refers to the law because he, he knows that the Pharisees placed all their trust in it. And so he asks them this question. He said, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to dissolve marriages with a certificate of divorce. So now... In sharp contrast against their interpretation of the law, this is how Jesus responds. He responds with a totally different perspective on God's intentions and take on the law. The Pharisees held that the law was a standard of perfection. So they believed that God had given the law as a perfect standard to mark out their way to salvation. So in their minds, if, if they kept the letter of the law regardless of the intent, they were saved. But Jesus had a very different perspective on it, and this is how he explained it. He said, it was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses even wrote this portion of the law. Jesus' response looks all the way back to creation and leverages God's original intentions for marriage and reminds them that it's always been about a lifelong commitment. And he said, Moses permitted divorce because people are unable to walk in love and forgiveness towards one another. And then later in verses 10 through 12, the disciples model, I think, us, or they certainly model me. They're left with a great deal of unclarity about this, and they, they have a need for clarity on the divorce issue because they too, they're literally taken back, I think, by his reply. And again, Jesus answers them by focusing on the heart of the matter, and he suggests that the law was being used to misuse liberty. You see, some people were simply, just like today, getting rid, of, getting rid of older spouses for younger ones. And so Jesus says, anyone who divorces and remarries for just the whim of any personal preference commits adultery. But here's the real point. Everybody say real point. This is what Jesus was getting at. He's saying that our relationship with God is, is not to be held to a standard that measures our conformity to the letter of the law, because who could stand up to that? Instead, God looks on the inside at the true intentions of the heart, and he knows whether or not we're intentionally pushing to live outside the boundaries of God's laws, or whether we're really trying to live our lives in accordance with the law of the spirit of life that's in Christ Jesus. This is the type of lesson, I think, that you'd have experienced when you were on the road with Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying in these two stories that contrast one another. He's saying that we're called to live a life with such an awareness that we're called to 
that we're, that we're careful not to let our living relationships with Jesus and others be translated into frozen rules that ignore the God-given motives and intentions of our hearts and that are insensitive to the true desires and the true passions of God's heart that he reveals to us in his word. That it's a life of grace. And then the sequence ends with another story that I believe contrasts the, the legalistic lifestyle of the Pharisees with what I call a story of grace. And this is the purpose. This is why Jesus has come to inaugurate a new kingdom, a new order, and one that's governed by grace. In verses 13 through 16, we're on the road with Jesus, and we're told that people are bringing all of these little people to him so that he could touch them and and bless them. The disciples begin to object to this, and in fact, some of them even take it upon themselves to manage what I would call crowd control by trying to send the parents and their children away. But I want us to look at how Jesus responds. In verses 13 through 16, indignantly he commands them to let the little children come to him. And he says, I don't want you to hinder or prevent children from coming to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he went on to add a very interesting comment. In verse 15, Jesus says this. He says, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it. And over the years, I've I've heard a number of suggestions that have attempted to explain Jesus' statement. And while, while most of them have been helpful, and as they focused on the behavior and the condition of an innocent child's heart and mind, none has been as meaningful to me as this. You see, I think Jesus is using this story to be seen as it's set in contrast to the legalistic approach of the Pharisees. And I think this is the point that he was trying to make. That in Judaism... A little child was never considered to be under the law. It wasn't until a child's 13th birthday that a person was even old enough to be considered to be able to relate to God through the law, let alone be held accountable to it. So this is what I think Jesus is saying. I think he's saying to receive the kingdom of God like a little child means to reject the law as a way of entering into God's kingdom. Because it has no jurisdiction and it forces us, instead like children, to rely on the love and the mercy and the grace of God. And for me, that's good news. These are the lessons that would have served as signs providing your life with a sense of direction and meaning as you traveled the dusty Judean roads with Jesus. The second road is the road to the good life. Everybody say good life. Another thing you'd see and experience on the road with Jesus would have, would have been the strong objection that you'd watched him make to the assumed values that come with what I call humanistic reasoning. In verses 17 through 34, a young rich man approaches Jesus, and he addresses him as a good teacher, and then he asks Jesus this question. He says, Jesus, what is it that I must do to inherit eternal life? Immediately, Jesus appears to challenge the young rich man's assumptions in verse 18, and he asks him this question. He says, why do you call me good? And I think Jesus is just a little bit taken back and surprised that somebody of this person's caliber didn't understand that only God alone was good. This is one of the fundamental flaws, though, of humanism. Humanism seeks to base its understanding on the goodness and human motives and actions without really taking into account the true goodness of God in contrast to the brokenness and the fallenness of humanity. And so this young rich ruler 
to help him discover the error for himself, Jesus now asks him about the commands that are listed on the second tablet of the law. You know, when God gave them to Moses, they were in two tablets. When Moses brought down the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, they were written on two tablets. The first tablet contained commands that related to loving God and our relationship with him, all five of them. They started with, you shall have no other gods before me, and they ended with, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. The second Tabbath, from which the questions that Jesus asked came from, contained commands that focused on our relationship with loving one another and loving other human beings. They started with, honor your father and mother, and ended with, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And here's why this is important to understand what was written on the two tablets. When Jesus spoke with the young rich ruler about his knowledge and lifestyle relating to the Ten Commandments, he only quoted from the second tablet as he spoke of the commands not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to give false testimony, and to honor your father and mother. Commands that dealt with the relationships with others. Those were the only ones that Jesus asked him about, to which the young ruler replied. He says, well, I've kept every one of them since I was a boy. I imagine when I look at this, if I was on the road with Jesus and I was watching him, if I was even answering that question, I would imagine at this point that I'd probably be doing pretty good and feeling pretty good about myself. He'd been honest in his answers with Jesus. In fact, so much so that the Bible tells us that when Jesus looked at him, and I think this means that he looked right through him, the Bible says, and he loved him. Jesus knew his heart. You see... Potential goodness, folks, just isn't good enough. Then Jesus spoke to the great lack of faith in this rich young ruler's life. He told him, he says, I want you to sell everything that you've got, and I want you to give it to the poor, and I want you to come and follow me. The same call that he had extended to the other apostles. In verse 22, we're told that the rich young ruler's face fell when he heard the words of Jesus, and he walked away disheartened and sad because the Bible says he had great wealth. Now, the problem here is not the accumulation, not the acquisition or the position of wealth, just the misplaced love for it. And here's what's really going on here. First, the rich young ruler misplaced his values. And what he thinks is the best humanism has to offer, and it's simply this, that a truly good person, good by human standards, somebody who'd related correctly to his fellow men would be good enough, but Jesus says that this fails to hit the mark. So what's missing? Well, what he missed was the first commandment on the first tablet, which deals with our relationship with God. And the very first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. When Jesus gave the instructions to sell everything that he had and to come and follow him as one of his disciples, the rich young ruler's response clearly and vividly demonstrated that this good man's good, good, goodness just wasn't good enough. And even though he was so sensitive in his his dealings with others, even with his authentic love for humanity, one thing stood in his way, and Jesus pointed that out. He actually did have another God before the one true God, and it was his money. And when Jesus, the Son of God, commanded him to sell his possessions, he made a conscious choice. He chose his money, and the Bible says that he walked away. You see, this is the kind of lessons that you would have heard if you were walking the dusty roads with Jesus. 
These are the kind of teachings that would have rubbed off on you when you walked the rocky roads with Jesus. How hard it is for this rich young ruler to give God his proper place, first place in his life. Even before our spouses, even before our families, even before our careers, humanistic good may bring us an honest consideration of people. And that's good. But putting God first always demands our everything. And again, the disciples don't get it. And I just love that. Because you know what? I can so identify with that. Can't you? I can so identify sometimes with some of the things that I read in the Bible that I I just don't get it. I'm a little slower on the uptake. And so the disciples misunderstand this. And I mean, they're talking about livelihood. Look at verse 24 and following. When Jesus remarked on how hard it is for the rich to enter his kingdom, the disciples were stunned because, like a lot of us in America, in their minds and in many of ours, wealth's the sign of God's approval. So if it's easier to put a camel through the eye of a sewing needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples are reasoning in their mind, who on earth can be saved? Jesus answered this in verse 27. He said, with man, this is impossible. You see, no matter how kind and considerate the humanist may be, mere human goodness can never win entrance into God's kingdom. But with God, everybody say with God, all things are possible. You see, it's in Jesus that God has made a way for people to return. And no one is really good except Jesus, the righteous one, who's paved the way. In verses 28 through 31, it's clear that the disciples still don't get it. Still, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for that too because I'm pretty slow in the uptake sometimes. See, now, fascinated with riches and wealth and the role that money plays in our life, Peter starts thinking out loud and he looks at Jesus and he says, we've left everything to follow you. And it's here that Jesus nods and makes Peter and you and me a promise. Jesus says, in abandoning everything without fail to follow me, you will gain everything you need, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And here's the point. You see, in Christ, we don't do to get anything. We do because of what we've already got. We're in a relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Christ, we've become the possessors of all things that pertain to life and goodness. And everything's available to us that is needed for operating and managing God's kingdom. Jesus is the King of the kingdom and we're called to be ambassadors with him. The kingdom of heaven is full of more than enough church. More than enough resources to run God's kingdom and to manage our lives in the process. Like the disciples who did not always get it sometimes, we don't always get it, like the rich man. So I want to just ask you a question, the same one that Jesus asked at the very beginning. Who do the people in your world say that Jesus is? And more importantly, who do you say that Jesus is? In who and in what do you really place your faith to meet your needs in life? You see, Jesus said, many who seem first in this life will be last in God's kingdom, like the rich young ruler. And those who will be last in the world, who seem to be in last place in the world, 
may just very well be the ones that are in first place in God's kingdom. And I want you to see if you can guess who that is at the end of this message. The third road is the road to position and power. Everybody say position and power. And we live in a world where we're always trying to position ourselves to, to, to acquire and attain more power to make better lives for ourselves and those that we love and those that we serve with. But you know, signs provide us not only with a sense of direction, but they also serve to keep us from making wrong turns. And I've made some wrong turns in ministry. I've made some wrong choices and. One of the dangers that you'll experience while traveling on the road for Jesus is this wrongfully placed desire for the wrong kind of authority with which we're called to leave and to serve others. Pastor Kent here in March is getting ready to teach another class, a great class on learning to lead like Jesus. And I think he kind of gets to the heart of this teaching and this story. In verses 35 through 45, James and John, the sons of thunder, demonstrate this all too well. They're both eager for positions of power in Jesus' group, this little band with which they've been traveling called the disciples. They kind of have their idea of the coming of the kingdom. And in fact, they want this position so bad that they've got their mom lobbying for their position, which one's going to sit on the right and which one's going to sit on the left. And it's in the midst of this jockeying for position and power that Jesus warns that those who seek position in his kingdom must be ready to drink from Christ's cup and be baptized with his baptism. A very stark statement that speaks to the very heart of the question that we started with when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you really say that I am? Because if they hold true to their previous confession that he's the Christ, then to follow him and serve him in his kingdom requires a complete surrendering of their lives to Him and the complete dedication of God's will for their lives and the lives that they live may entail great suffering and great sacrifice. I want you to look at how Jesus responds to their request in verse 41. He tells them, He says, I want you to abandon your notion of position and authority the way that it's practiced in this world. Because in this world, the rulers and leaders of this world lord their authority over others and use them to control other people as a means to an end. And then he makes it very clear that this is not the way that it's done in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus says the person who is the greatest is the one who gives themselves away to serve others just as Jesus came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The greatest might just very well be the lowest. The one who dedicates, and the one who dedicates him or herself, not to be served by those whom he or she gives orders to are really the kind of people that Jesus is looking for who, who learn to lead and to serve and to love like Jesus. How different are the conversations and the values that one hears when traveling on the road with Jesus? And then we finally come to the Jericho Road, the, the road to faith, verses 46 through 52. This is the last stretch before Jerusalem. And by now, large crowds of people are, are gathering. Everybody's making their way to the Passover that's going to be celebrated in Jerusalem. And the roads are crowded. There's noise and there's activity that comes with the large crowds. And as Jesus left Jericho to approach Jericho, someone cries out over the commotion of the crowd. And he cries out with a loud voice saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This blind beggar who cries out over all of the road noise, does so with a language that identifies Jesus as the Messiah, 
specific language, just like Peter did when Jesus asked the disciples in Mark 8. Who are people saying that I am, and who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, we know that there were probably at least two blind beggars sitting by the road, if you read Matthew's account. But the one named Bartimaeus exhibits what I think is an extraordinary level of faith in who many of them are beginning to call Jesus the Nazarene. It was common for beggars to hedge their place along the roadside to collect alms from travelers, people who were coming and going. But when they heard that Jesus the Nazarene was passing by their way, the Bible tells us that Bartimaeus did his best, did everything in his power to get Jesus' attention. You know, Jesus had been around for three years. His reputation had preceded him. He'd probably walked by this way before. Bartimaeus had probably, he might have attended some of the teachings where people were healed and he hadn't been. He'd heard the stories that had circulated from Galilee and Judea and Samaria. At first, the crowd, including the disciples, tried to silence the blind beggar. Even the people in the crowd are trying to keep the beggar quiet. But he won't have anything to do with it. Instead, he cries out louder. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Then the Bible tells us in verse 49 that Jesus stopped. And asked someone to bring this desperate beggar to him. And I imagine that as they approached Bartimaeus to let him know that Jesus wanted him, that he he rose and he threw off his outer coat so he wouldn't trip over it. And with the disciples' help, they bring him to Jesus. I've often contemplated on the actions of blind Bartimaeus. Because when he comes before Jesus, and Jesus asks him the question, What do you want me to do for you? The ask is specifically met with who I believe Bartimaeus believed Jesus to be. The promised one who could restore his sight. Now this might seem like a strange question to ask a blind person who's in such great need of their sight. But it's the same question that Jesus asked James and John and Salome in verse 36. I thought about this and I really think that Jesus wanted to give Bartimaeus an opportunity to to express and give evidence of of the personal faith that he'd come to have in Jesus. You know, confession with the mouth is important about what you believe in here. The Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When we read these stories of the Bible, the Bible doesn't tell us what kind of personality types these people were, but I'm sure they were of every type. And there seems to be one common thread that they have in common. When when they meet Jesus and their need is met, they're so overjoyed, they're so filled with life, their lives are so transformed that they can't help but tell people about it. Just like some of you introverts when you go to the the Hawkeyes game or, or something like that. You see, here's the thing about faith, and I'll close with this. Faith is not just a subjective experience, though I think it always includes this. It's not just something that's measured on the inside of us by how strongly we believe or try to make ourselves believe. Biblical biblical faith is never blind. It always has an object. For Bartimaeus, that object was Jesus. For Peter and the disciples, that object was Jesus. 
Faith is only as solid as the object in which our trust is placed. And I hope for you and I hope for me that that is Jesus. Where do you see Jesus right now in your life? What is he saying to you as you walk these roads in Judea? After Jesus asked Bartimaeus what he wanted him to do, Bartimaeus said, My Lord and my teacher, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he was able to see and join the crowds that followed Jesus. And so we come full circle. We come to the question that has been asked in a number of ways along these roads that we traveled to get to Jericho. The question is simply this. And who and what do we really put our trust? Or to take it one step farther. And who and what do you really put your faith and trust? Who do the people in the worlds in which you live say that Jesus is? And to make it personal, who do you say that Jesus is? These are just some of the things that I think you would have learned and gleaned when you walked the roads with Jesus. What love, what mercy, what grace. We discover when we travel the dusty, rock-ridden roads with Jesus to Jericho. I want to invite you to do a two-minute exercise with me this morning. Up on the screen are going to be two questions. I want you to ask yourselves these two questions, and then we're just going to set in just a couple minutes of silence. Can we bring that screen up, guys? Just sit back and let Jesus speak to your heart. Father, we sit in your presence.
Lord, we delight ourselves in you. Lord, in the midst of the busy world in which we live, is we turn our hearts to be contemplative throughout this Lenten season. Lord, we invite you to direct us with the road signs that point us to the road of faith found in Jericho. May each of us and all who attend find the answer in the question with regards to who you really are to us. May the eyes of our understanding and the eyes of our hearts be opened to embrace you with the kind of faith of blind Barnabas, a Jesus in you and in you alone. All that we need is fully met. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I want to invite you to maintain an attitude of worship as our deacons come this morning to take up our tithes and offerings. <clears throat>